as I think about the East Bay, this place where we are on Vision Day, and what are we doing as a church? How are we being the church in this place? I think one of the things that you would have to acknowledge if you are a Bay Area person is that Bay Area people are activists, right? Bay Area people are activists. In fact, I don't know if this is my East Bay bias, but I even think like the real epicenter of activism that people often think of when they think of the Bay Area is even more in the East Bay, you know, Berkeley and, and Oakland and, and, and beyond. Um, the Bay Area people are, are activists. They want to change the world. That's what it means to be an activist, to want to change the world. And we're going to talk today about a God who wants to change the world. Now, if, um, if you're a Christian, your interaction with the activism in the Bay Area is layered, right? It's layered. There are some things that you agree with and you jump on board. There are some things that you disagree with and you have to, you have to kind of cut a different path. And then there's a lot of things where, frankly, you don't know what to believe, right? It's just kind of this tumult, this confusion of people moving in all kinds of directions and trying to bring about change in the world. Um, and how do, how do we as Christians fit into that and sometimes lead that? And, 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 and what, is it all, what does it all look like? Well, on, on this vision day, I want to remind us as a church that the church, as ordained by God, is an activistic church. It's on the move. It wants to change the world. You, community, are an activistic community. And as an individual Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are, in a sense, an activist. And I'll describe a little bit what that means. The gospel comes in a framework that speaks to all the issues that are important to people in our day. The gospel comes in a framework that speaks to all the issues that are important to people in our day, whether that be, you know, some of the topics that are top of our mind are race or, or politics or gender or sexuality, the environment. Uh, all of these are, are sort of fresh in our minds. And the gospel comes in a framework that speaks into all of those issues and it, it not only speaks to them, but it provides the best way of thinking about all of those things. And not only that, it's even richer than that. It even provides the best way of thinking about a lot of other things that might not be top of our mind right now, but are nonetheless incredibly important to our world and to what it means to be a human being right now. And as a church... You know, and as the world's been shifting and, and pandemic and, and the issues have come up, we have been striving to delve into uh, all of the, 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 the things that are important in life. And what we want to do as a church is continue to, to disciple one another in learning and growing how to navigate the world in a way that God intends for us. In the way that reflects the, the teaching of scripture. A lot of the things that are happening in our world will, will disappear, will, will, will come and go. We've seen cycles over and over again out through, down through history. But we know that the word of the Lord stands forever. And so what does it mean to live in such a way that our life really aligns with what God has said that's that's part of the process that we're in as a church and it's a struggle it's a battle it always will be it'll always be challenging 
recently I have resubmitted to the leadership of the church um, a kind of a revised version of our five-year plan, which we had begun to dig into before the pandemic, and then the pandemic happened, and a lot of things got shifted, and so it needs some revision. Um, and it has timelines and plans for, for how we can continue to grow as a church in discipling people. Well, whether that be in uh, the hard topics, whether that be in leadership, whether that be in the core elements of our faith, all of it matters. And we want, to be, we want to be a church that disciples well. Now, I think some of us, uh, in, as we reflect on this last season, have felt the weight, the kind of crushing weight of a season of deconstruction that we've been in. Um, not just as, as a local church, but the church more broadly in the West. And even as a society, we're deconstructing all of the institutions, including the church. And I just want to encourage you, if you've, and, and this, you know, this is a process that can be good and helpful in many respects because um, you have to think about how you're doing things. And the church uh, in the West, the church in America has not always done things in the best way. You have to continually process. Each local church has to go through the process of refining and God takes us on this journey. And, and there's a, a season of, of deconstruction where you, where you reflect on who you've been and where you've been and how how you're doing things and that's good and and as long as we go back to the word and allow God to sort of guide our future direction that will produce wonderful important really valuable fruit but I want to encourage some of you who under the weight of this season of deconstruction might be feeling somewhat hopeless not to lose your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications of the gospel for, for all areas of life. Yes, we may not always live it out in the right way. Because we're sinful people and, and we're on a journey with God. Um, so, so there are times when it's hard to have hope in human beings. right? But, but we, we don't want to lose hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this church, the church is a community that's changing the world. God wants to change the world through us. We shine like a beacon. And I think in this season, some of what's happened is that the enemy has tried to steal that sense of identity from us, to make us ashamed about who we are, right? And to undercut the call that is in our lives, individually and collectively. So I just want to say to you, as I think about the call on your life and on our lives collectively, the call on the church that God has, has established is that you are beautiful. Now, this is not me trying to kiss up to you on vision day. Um, I do love the church and I think it's beautiful and I've given my life to the church and I'm so thankful that I I have. I'm saying this because this is what God says. Open up to Romans chapter 10. And if you would, if you would kind of look at that whole section and put your finger on verse 15. I'm just going to re re read verse uh, 15, the second part of it. Then we're going to, throughout the course of our time together this morning, sort of expand and radiate outward and explore the context of this particular verse. But I want to start, I want to start right here 
in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, the second part of it. And it simply says this, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful are the feet. It's a figure of speech. Metonymy, part for the whole, refers to the whole person. Why the feet? Because the feet are what carry the person. It's the the mode of transportation. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want to unpack that together this morning in two moves. First of all, the message and the medium. So the message itself and then the medium, which is how the message goes forward. And uh, I'm actually going to raise up this because the person who preached last week was not quite as tall. (laughs) And there he is chuckling. All right. Okay, so um, let's talk about the message. The passage that I just read in that little portion, uh, uh, you know, comes just after Paul has made a powerful statement relating to what is really the, at the center of the Christian faith. What's really at the center of the Christian faith? And this is good for those of you who might uh, be inquiring about God. And, and I just want to say, if, if you're online with us today or you're here and you're just sort of dipping your toe into things of faith, you're not sure what you believe, I want you to feel welcome in this place. Um, because uh, I think, you know, for the most part, for the entire almost 17-year life of this church, we have almost always had people in community with us on a Sunday morning who wouldn't say that they're a Christian even. They're just, they're in, they're just seeking. They're curious about the things of God. And so uh, don't feel strange if that's you. Um, we, we love that you are here and, and just being a part of this morning and asking questions and all that. And, and what I'm going to share in this first part, the message is really, um, is really probably the, the, the I would say, the, the question you most want to grapple with when it comes to having a relationship with God. But it's also important for us as a community to continue to, to retell this story to ourselves and to learn how to tell it well. And that comes by practice, that comes by hearing it, that comes most importantly by a close reading of scripture and understanding um, how God tells us the story of what he's done in the world. And what Paul talks about in this passage, in the section, you know, just beyond, just before where I have read, is um, he talks about this idea of being saved. I'm just opening up to it so that so I can just refresh myself. Like if you're in, open your Bible. If you're if you're if you're uh, on your your device, scroll back a little bit. Uh, we're we're looking at you know uh, verses seven and beyond, and I'm going to read a portion of that in a minute. And what he's talking about in that section is being saved. And what does that mean? And and I would say that uh, on the large scale, being saved ultimately means having a relationship with God. Um, There is a God out there, and amazingly, he wants to have a relationship with us. That's that's the first part of the good news. Um, There is a God out there, and amazingly, you might be thinking you're not sure, but the message of the, the gospel is that he wants to have a relationship with you with us. And the reason that it's called being saved is because 
This world, this is the one thing we can all agree on. Whatever religion, we're atheists, not atheists. We can all, the world's a mess, right? The world is a mess. Um, it's a mess because of sin and evil. And God's plan, according to scripture, is to bring judgment and renewal on the world. Now think about this. This is a, this is a dynamic we see all throughout the, the created world, all throughout our life experience. There's a flood, and then the flood subsides. And there's, there's a time, uh, the fading waters bring renewal and new life. We see this in California. There's a fire. There's a fire that comes through and brings destruction. And then what, ha- what happens after that? There's fresh foliage that starts to grow in its place. This, you could go through all kinds of uh, arenas of life. There are many different examples of this, this. This dynamic of destruction and renewal. And so it shouldn't be strange to us that God is also working this on the cosmic level. With all that's broken because of sin and evil in the world, there will come a day of judgment in which you know this destruction occurs and then leads to a kind of renewal. The Bible talks about it as the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. And to be saved is to, be, is to go through that season of destruction and on to the season of renewal in the new heaven and the new earth. Where, where, where the most wonderful thing about that is that there is the full uh, open presence of God. What we most long for more than anything in this world is be in the presence of God. The perfect presence of God. And so what is it that would keep you out of that place? What is it would keep you uh, away that would, that would make you not saved? And the answer is sin. Sin is simply a failure to be aligned with the plans and the designs of God. It's a failure to be aligned with the plans and the designs. And it's a rejection of the loving relationship that God wants to have with us. So it's, it's like a, there's a moral piece and there's a relational side to it. And there's a lot more. It's a very rich subject that cuts in many different directions. But that's at the core. And it's why the world is such a mess. And you, and you can't take, this is the thing, you can't take your sin into that place of newness, to heaven, to the new heaven and the new earth. You can't take, because if you did, if we all did, it would ruin the place, right? So then the question becomes, you know, how do we address the sin problem? And there's a couple of possibilities. Either we can stop sinning and then go back and make amends for all the sins that we've ever committed in the history of our life. That'd be one option. Or we could be forgiven for our sin. So two options. We can go back, make amends for all the sins we've committed, and then never sin again. That's impossible. None of us has the capacity to accomplish that in and of ourselves. Or we could be forgiven. And that's what God brings about through Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. On the cross, he atoned for sin. And then, of course, after his death and being put in the tomb, he rises from the dead as a confirmation that the work he set out to do was, in fact, accomplished. That's what the resurrection says. See, it's done. 
once and for all. Sin has been atoned for. Your sin has been atoned for. It's been accomplished. And the question for all of us as human beings, and the question for you, if you're seeking this morning, the question for all of us uh, in relation to ourselves and, and, and all the people that we know, the question, the question is, do you want the atoning work of Jesus applied to your life? Do you want the toning, atoning work? That means he took into himself the consequence of sin, the punishment of sin. Do you want the atoning work of Jesus Christ to be applied to your life? And as we look at this text, we can answer the next question is, if so, if the answer is yes, how do I go about that? So look with me in verse 9. How do I go about having that work of Jesus applied to my life? Because I know I can't stop sinning. I can't make amends for everything I've done. I even know what it all is. But I, I could be forgiven. And Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. And here's how it happens. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And by the way, right there, right there, right at the core the, the implication of the gospel is that Jew and Greek are brought together. So you want, you want to know the answer to the, to the race issues that we're struggling with. It's, it's in the gospel. Because Jew and Greek, that stands for all the different kinds of people in the world. And they're brought together in the gospel. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Hmm. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, all people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So someone hears the word, and what's the word? According to this scripture, the word um, is that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Now, the whole New Testament is about that. There's a lot of different ways to say that, but if you want a, a clear sort of crystal uh, example of it. Here it is. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. That's the word. And you hear that. A person coming to faith hears that word. Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. And then it goes, it goes deeper. It's not just hearing it. There's, there's a, there is a union with the will of the person, the heart, to say, I believe that word. I believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him. From that. that happens inside of someone, right? And even as we're talking about this, just because I believe, I mean, I don't believe almost anything about my ability to say anything valuable, um, but I believe infinitely in the power of the word of God to communicate um, to us in, in the most incredible ways. And so even as I'm sharing this with you, I'm wondering if there's some who are listening who are saying, it, like they're having that experience in their heart that I believe 
I hear the word and now I'm believing because uh, something is stirring. The Holy Spirit is moving in my life. And then that, that goes to the third part. Someone calls on the name of the Lord. So hearing to believing. So ears, heart, mouth to call on the name of the Lord. The inward decision issues forth in an outward response um, and through the, through the manifestation, you know, the movement, it's physical, the movement of the lips. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. My Lord and my Savior. My resurrected Savior. If God moves in your heart in this way, if he's moving in your heart in this way right now, or if you have the blessed privilege of sharing this good news with your friends or your relatives or your associates or your neighbors, right? The response, according to Romans 10 here, is this confession with the mouth. And so you, you say something like this, and you can say, you can say this along with me if, if, you're, if you're in this journey this morning. Lord, I recognize, look, you know what? Start here. I've always wanted you to be there, God. And I'm so glad to know that you are. I'm so, so glad to know that the thing that keeps me from you, my sin, you have dealt with in Jesus Christ. And made it possible for me to be forgiven so that I can be saved. So that I can be with you in the new heaven and the new earth. And I can even begin now to learn to live according to the, the ways the, of the new heaven and new earth. To live according to the kingdom. Lord, I want the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to be applied to my life. To my sin. So that I might have the hope of walking with you for all eternity, of being in your presence, which is, the, which is the greatest thing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is the message of the good news, and it's the way the world gets changed, and it's what we've been called to speak and to share, which leads to the second point, and that is the medium. So we know what the message is. What's the medium? The main contention of the Bible is that what I just described is a center. It's a source of, of the transformation of the world. God is the supreme activist. So all those activistic you know, juices flowing in, with, in you that you want to you know, see the world changed, God is the supreme activist. So align yourself with him, and he wants to make the world the, the, better in the best way. He wants to make the world better in the best way. And the message of the gospel does that. And the implications of the gospel touch all areas of life and human existence. We've already talked about this, whether it be you know, race or politics or gender or sexuality or the environment or whatever else you can come up or whatever else becomes an issue that's really at the forefront of our conversations. And as I said, all the things that we're not talking about right now that are still important for humankind, 
those are centered in the gospel as well. Um, your purpose in life, how you think about yourself, how you think about others, your emotions, your relationships, all of it, all of it is transformed by the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So if that's the message, then what is the medium? How does the message go forth? And the answer is you. The answer, how this message goes forth is you of the beautiful feet. You of the beautiful feet are the one who takes the message forward. And your feet are not beautiful because they like don't smell or they look particularly good. Um, that's not what makes for beautiful feet. It's the message that they carry. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It, who's they? Anybody. All people around you in your context, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, your associates, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As I tease this out, I've got two questions for us. First of all, who sent and what does it mean to preach? Who sent? Um, we talked about this recently as we were studying the Great Commission. Um, making disciples is an inherent part of being a disciple. It's an integral part. It's an inseparable part of being a disciple. So if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then part of being a disciple is making disciples. For too long, we have allowed ourselves to separate those two as if, as if they were separable. But they're not. They're not separable. Being a disciple means making disciples. And of course, we need people to, to help us. So we have one hand forward to pull us along and we have one hand back to bring other people along. Being a disciple means making disciples. And with this idea that somehow you have to come to a kind of magical level of maturity in the faith before God can, can use you to participate in making disciples has to be done away with. We've got to do away with it. You could have the babiest Christian ever, right? Just brand new, whom God would use to make disciples in a beautiful and powerful way. And you can have a very mature Christian you know, who also could be used to make disciples in a beautiful, powerful way. It, it doesn't matter. Why? Because it's not contingent upon the person. It's contingent upon God. It's making a statement about how great God is, not about how great we are. Fruitfulness and effectiveness is a reflection of who God is, not, not who we are. And so I want to encourage us this morning to be sent like the passage talks about, to be sent. Um, 
you maybe have heard this illustration. One of my friends was preaching at this church a number of years back, and he used this illustration. Um, and he was talking about his teenage kids and going by and asking them to clean his room. He said, what, ha- what would happen if I asked my teenage son to clean his room, and, uh, you know, I came back a couple days later, and the room was still a complete disaster, a total mess. And there was my son sitting in there, and, and, and I said, you know, what, what's going on with the, with the room cleaning? And he says to me, well, look, Dad, man, when you asked me to clean my room, that was amazing. Like, it really got to me. It just hit my heart. It was amazing. I went to school, and um, I decided I'm going to gather some others, and we're going to talk about room cleaning. And so we started a, a small group, and we've been talking all week long, like we meet regularly. We've been talking all week long about room cleaning and the different ways to clean a room, you know, and, and just what a wonderful thing. So just thank you, Dad, so much for asking me to clean my room. Really changed my life. Of course, Dad's standing there going, but your room is still dirty, right? Your room has in some ways, we can approach our being sent in that way. We love to talk about it. We love to reflect on it. But unless we're actually following through and allowing God to, be a, to send us, right? That we're just being like that kid who talks about cleaning the room but doesn't get the room clean. God is calling us to be sent. Actually. Actually. You know, this coming week, this next Sunday, we're going to start a new series, and I've entitled it, uh, When Loving is Difficult. And it's going to be, I think, about five weeks, I think it's five weeks, studying 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of the most famous passages. You've heard it at a wedding and stuff. But how many of us have really dug into 1 Corinthians 13? It's a passage about love. And in this season, where there's so much division and polarization, I was just thinking that perhaps Christians and non-Christians alike would be helped by a deep dive into what it means to love, to truly learn to love, and to discover that we actually can't love in the most wonderful way without God. That we need God to be able to love in the way that we want to love. So over these next five weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. We have a mailer that is going out and has already gone out. It says, when loving is difficult, it just describes a little bit about uh, this next series. If you're like most people, you found it hard to love others during this season of division and polarization. Whether it's a coworker, a family member, a friend, or a neighbor, we understand that loving well isn't easy. And then it just sort of goes, goes on from there. There's some extra ones of these uh, in the back, I believe. And so if you'd like to take these and share them with a friend or a neighbor or a relative or an associate. And this is the crazy thing because of the weirdness of the season. You could invite somebody to be with us online or you can invite them to be with us physically in person. And I'm interested to see how God might use both of those. But I want to encourage you to be sent. To be sent. And we're going to do this as a community together, right? You don't have to do it alone. We're doing this together. And if somebody comes, they're going to meet people. And God will orchestrate that. And they might be like that person. And and God will figure out how, um, what that person needs in terms of relationships. You don't have to manage the whole thing. You just need to be faithful to be sent. To make the invitation to the gospel. Which is God's way 
of changing the world and changing one person at a time. All right, we're also going to do on the 16th, we're going to do some version of sort of, you know, going out to our neighbors and just, you know, we never got to, we never got to say, hey, we're in this building and we're glad to be your neighbors. We just want to open our hearts to you and let you, you know, be a part of us or get to know us. We never got to say that. So we want to say that uh, over this next month. So question is one is being sent. Question two is, and, and I think some of you are probably asking this as you look at this text, what does it mean to preach? What does it mean to preach? And probably when I say that word, um, many of you think of what I'm doing right now, standing in the pulpit, as it were, and preaching. Or maybe when I talk about preaching, you think about somebody standing on a street corner with a bullhorn and yelling to the crowds. Or if you're a teenager, anytime an adult is talking, that's preaching, right? What is preaching? The word actually just means to publish or proclaim or announce something that's true. And um, it often does have a sense of publicly, but not exclusively so. So it's not just me standing, preaching is not just me standing in the pulpit. We could use the word proclaiming. You could translate it that way. Um, it's not just standing on the, on, the, on the curb with a bullhorn. It's whenever we're talking about this message that we've been looking at this morning. And of course we want to do our best um, to, to explain it well. But it doesn't say, how are they to hear without someone preaching eloquently? Or articulately? Or intelligently? Or fluidly, even. It doesn't say any of those words. Right? Again, it's because it's not, about, it's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do. And he is so amazing. He can communicate his message of grace even through a vessel that is stumbling and tripping up and can't remember the right word, etc., etc. That's how big our God is. So, so to preach um, is to proclaim. And when the church works together to proclaim the message of Jesus, we become together the people of the beautiful feet. Again, why is it feet? It's because the feet are the mode. That's, that would be the mode of transportation in Paul's day, right? That's how they, they normally would, would get about. But it's really referring to the whole person. It's metonymy. It's a figure of speech. The feet stand for the whole person. So today we might say, you know, um, how beautiful are the, is the car of those who preach good news? If it took you a car to get somewhere, how beautiful is the car, right? Or the bike, or the electric scooter, or the BART train, whatever it is that you're taking, or the shoes, or the iMessage, or the Facebook page message, whatever you want. Whatever is the, media, what is the, whatever is the vehicle that's allowing you to get to a person to proclaim, to speak the good news of Jesus Christ, that's beautiful. That's the feat. That is indicative of the person who is beautiful in God's eyes. I think of a, a UPS truck. You're, you know, you walk in home or you're, you're driving and coming around the corner and there's the UPS truck in front of your house. You're like, ooh, right? Something's being delivered to my house. The church is like a UPS truck. 
all the different parts, and they all have to be working together. And the body of Christ with the people and their different gifts working together to be able to deliver the message of the good news. And sometimes it's the most broken down kind of vehicle that delivers the best package, right? Doesn't have to be a beautiful vehicle to get the package to your house. I mean, who, who has ever wanted to have for their own personal use a UPS truck? None of us, because it's not a beautiful vehicle, but it accomplishes the goal. I was watching um, this National Geographic documentary on uh, 9-11 recently, which I highly commend to you. Man, the National Geographic documentaries are pretty amazing. I also just watched one on the riots in L.A. in 1992 um, this week when I was on the plane, and it was amazing. So that's just a freebie for you. Um, but the, but this, this one on 9-11 was really powerful. The, very, the, the way it ended was like this. They have this guy... Um, his name was, was Chuck. And uh, Chuck was in New York City at the time that the towers were impacted. And he had, was a former paramedic. And, but now he was struggling with alcoholism. And he didn't go through, but it sounds like a bunch of other things. Um, and so he was, you know, just sort of waking up in the morning. And he gets his phone, and there's a voicemail from his sister and she says in this voicemail, I hope you're okay. I'm sure you're down there helping. And he listens to the voicemail. He's like, Psh. you know, probably hung over, whatever. He's like, I'm not helping. And as the morning goes on, that voicemail, that message keeps working on him. Till he starts to go, I, I'm going to go down there. My sister thinks I'm down there she has this view of me that I'm somebody who'd be down there helping in the destruction that has been wrought. And, he, and so he goes down and he shows up, this former paramedic, but very fearful man. He's afraid of fires. He's afraid of heights. Long story short, he ends up rambling across the fallen, you know, uh, twin towers and the destruction uh, through fires till he gets to the point where he hears this voice and he looks down and 50 feet down, he's afraid of heights, 50 feet down is a person at the very bottom. And working with another person, they figure out a way, and he goes down 50 feet into this hole, into this, you know, all this destruction, all, you know, and it's only just happened, so you don't know what's shifting. And he ends up bringing out this man named Will, and of course they show you, they interview Will, and they show him with his family, and caring for his family, and the life that he's living now, all because Chuck was willing to go Here's what Chuck says. I give myself no credit for any part of that rescue. God, this is National Geographic, God uses the weak to confound the wise, he says. God uses the low, the low people of the world to confound the wise. There's no way that I could ever turn around and say it was me, he says, about this rescue that he's been a part of. I had no desire, no will, no strength, no training, no power to have accomplished what the Lord used me to do that night. Romans 10, 14 through 17 is like a voicemail on your phone. Are you down there helping out? I'm sure you are. 
God, would you help us? Would you help us in this next season? Through everything that's taken place over the last 20 months plus, there's a lot of hurt and brokenness in this world. People are suffering. People are suffering like Will, the bottom of that pile. And you have enlisted us. We have what we need. And it has nothing to do with how skilled we are. It all has to do with you. We have what we need to step out in faith. To go to the places of brokenness and hurting and loss. And to be your hands and feet. To be your your mouthpiece. So that people might hear and believe in their hearts. And then confess faith in Jesus Christ. And by that, experience the incredible transformation that comes with the gospel. And touches all areas of life. So would you send us in this next season? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.